think we have any announcements tonight. Is that right? Nothing coming up, at least for another two or three weeks. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, and we probably need to confess sin if necessary. And it's just been one of those days, so living in the devil's world, there's always something going on that's not right. So we need to have our uh, spiritual life adjustment, and then uh, I will open in prayer. So let's pray, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word to go to, that it is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It illuminates the way in which we should go, and we are to trust in you, and you will make those paths straight. Father, we just thank you for all the many ways in which we know that you have made our path straight, whether we thought that was the right way to go or not, because we have trusted in you. You have watched over us as we have walked through this life. And Father, we thank you for another day that we have to serve you, and we pray that tonight as we study your word, that God the Holy Spirit will give us great insight into uh, the things that we study, that we may learn more about leadership and more about your grace and more about how you work in the providential oversight of human history. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to... Well, you can go to Judges chapter 3, which is generally where we are, but we're not spending a lot of time there. We're actually spending some time in Exodus uh, chapter 15. Uh, so you can just uh, wait until we get ready, to, uh, wait, get ready to go there because we have to back up and do a little review as we go forward. So we're continuing our study of what we began last time, which is looking at the qualifications of biblical leadership. As we look at this generation now that does not know the Lord, has not seen him work miracles, they haven't seen him give Israel the victories over the Canaanites that the generation of Joshua and the elders had seen, they are beyond all of that. All of those generations are gone, and probably another uh, 20 to 40 years have passed and they are uh, failing in carrying out the mission that was really given to them by the Lord and the commitment that was made by their parents and their grandparents' generation. And so just to remind you of what we're looking at here, the introduction describes in a summary overview of how Israel goes from spiritual victory to to where they are no different, in fact, worse than the Canaanites. We see the leadership 
uh, become paganized as we go through the book. That's the heart of this book. And so we're taking some time to look at what are the biblical standards that were given to Moses for selecting a leader. And then we will look at uh, the uh, appendices sort of at the end of the work uh, that deal with how the priests are paganized and the people are paganized. When a culture is sliding downhill, everybody gets mud on their feet and all the way up to their armpits because we're all products of that culture. And you can go through history and study generation after generation, and that's true. And because we, we live in a world that has shaped our thinking in ways that we're, we, most of us don't have the courage to really address because it, it, it doesn't look good. But thankfully, God in his grace has provided a solution, and so we don't need to get mired in, in guilt and uh, getting down on ourselves or anything else because God always meets us where we are. And that's one lesson you learn in Judges, no matter how bad things got. And it went generation after generation, and each generation was worse than the generation before. God always met them where they were. God always dealt with them in grace. And God, even when God was bringing discipline on the nation for their disobedience to him, for their violation of the covenant, when they were ready to turn to him again and again and again, God met them with uh, forgiveness and met them where they are. He didn't, never said, well, you know, you were here and now you're down here. You have to get back to where you were and then maybe we can talk about it. He met them exactly where they, where they were. And so part of that is that the leadership that they had reflects the paganism that has infected the culture. And so as we go through this, one of the things we should be reminded of is that when we live in the midst of a, of a culture that is in great disobedience to God and violation of all of God's standards and all of the foundational principles that God established for all, all the nations, then, then we're going to have a difficult time. And when you go through the history of Christianity and you walk through the muck that is the Middle Ages and the lack of biblical knowledge from the visible church, then you realize that, that God dealt with them in, in grace also. Time and time again, there, were, there was always a light shining somewhere where someone uh, was bringing the, the truth. And in some cases, it's, we just don't know about it because there weren't too many, too many records. But the leadership, even when you get into the Reformation, you, if you really study Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and John Knox, they had, they had a lot of flaws. They had flaws in their theology. They had some flaws in their, in their own lives. But they're coming out of the muck that preceded them. So we see these three things, and we're still focusing on right at the end of the first section in 3.6. So last time we looked at what the Bible teaches about standards for leadership. And the first point that we looked at was that the leaders in Judges do not fit the biblical standards in the Old Testament for leaders. They fit maybe one of them, but they don't fit more than that. Now, we aren't given a lot of information about some of them, 
and some it, they're just mentioned, all we know is their name, and others like Othniel, which will be the first judge we look at, we don't know about him. We're told enough to where we get a good peek at this individual and that he was a man who trusted God, but we're not told a whole lot more, but we'll get into that as we go along. So when we look at how God raised up leaders like Gideon, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, all mentioned in Hebrews 11, Samson. We know that even in our generation, the men that God may raise up to lead us may not be anywhere close to what we think they should be. But that's because they're coming out of the same muck as everybody else in, in the culture. So we then went to Exodus chapter 18 to look at the standards that are given in Exodus 18, 21. And in Judges 18.21, which is in the center of the slide, we read, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So those are the, the qualifications, and what does that mean? And we have to look at that. What does it mean to be an able man? It's a capable man. It's a man who's able to get things done, and he is a man who has uh, virtue and integrity in his life. They fear God, and they are, tr- they are men characterized by the truth, and they hate covetousness. So we're looking at each one of those. And last time we started with the first one, able men, which is in the Hebrew, the phrase anashi hayil. Anashi is a plural for uh, males. And hayil is a strong term that has, it's translated a, a variety of ways because it really covers a large, uh, a, a large uh semantic range. It can mean someone who's wealthy. It can mean someone who has integrity. It can mean someone who has a great moral courage or great moral courage and spiritual courage. It can re- also, in many cases, the word chayil, which has as its root concept strength, is a word that is used to describe an army. It is another word. Sabot is the word that is... Um, Sabaoth uh, is a word that is used normally to refer to an army. It's usually translated with the more antiquated term hosts, but this word chayil is used to describe the armies of, of Egypt. It's used at times to describe an army of Israel it, it, because it's, it's just a, um, uh, an idiom for what an army is. It expresses the strength of a people, strength of a nation. So it's a strong uh, Hebrew expression. It is uh, used in the uh, NET translation. It's described as capable men, that is, men who know how to get things done. They have skills. They're able to accomplish things. Uh, It's translated men of valor many times in the New King James, and it also has the idea of men of integrity. It emphasizes someone who's influential in the community, somebody who's lived life, 
perhaps failed some. He knows difficulties, but he understands the issues of life. And because of the fact that he is also a God-fearer, he knows the Word of God and can apply wisdom from the Word of God in uh, difficult circumstances and difficult situations. And in terms of the men that are judges, it is, the word Chayil is used in Judges 6.12 when the angel of the Lord refers to Gideon as a man of Chayil, a man of strength, as Gideon is hiding out from the Midianites in the threshing floor, and he's hiding out. He doesn't look like a man of valor. So a lot of people think that the angel of the Lord is being sarcastic when he says that uh, to Gideon. Jephthah is also called a mighty man of Chayil, and he is. He is a a strong individual with uh, some military skill. Saul is described as a man of Chayil in 1 Samuel 19.1. David is in 1 Samuel 16.18, which we'll look at in a second. Uh, Jeroboam, who is the one who is high in Solomon's administration, and then uh, he is uh, trying to bring out all the, point, all the inequities in Solomon's administration, and he has to go on the run. And he's the one who comes back as the first king of the northern kingdom. And he is described as a man of Chayil, and also the Gentile, Naaman the Syrian, in 2 Kings 6.14. So now he's a soldier, so it probably relates to his being a soldier, but this phrase is used of a number of different people. What's interesting is there are no examples that I could find where this is used other than David where, where the other characteristics of leadership would be true. In 1 Samuel sixteen eighteen, one of the servants of Jesse... Uh, or one of the servants, I think, of Saul says, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing. The word there isn't isn't hochma, which is a word for, for really skill and something like that, but it is it has more the idea that he's he's practiced, he knows how to play. He's a mighty man of valor and a man of war, prudent in speech, and handsome in person, and then the key characteristic, the Lord is with him. So that is, that, that's the only description in any of these men that has a, a strong spiritual emphasis in terms of their, their character and their quality. The word chayil is used in 2 Samuel twenty two thirty three, a psalm of David, God is my strength and power. There it's translated power. Often it's translated strength as it is in Habakkuk 3.19. Uh, Yahweh Elohim is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on high, high hills. The counterpart to this is the word that is used, a phrase that is used in Proverbs 31. Starting in Proverbs 31, we have it um, translated in the uh, Holman Christian uh, uh, Standard Bible 
as who can find a virtuous wife, which is actually how it should be translated. I always facetiously uh, build off of the King James translation that says, a godly woman who can find. Uh, It's a question. I always say, no, it's punctuated wrong. It's a godly woman who can find, who can find my keys and find my glasses and find my wallet and whatever else I've misplaced. So, uh, but that is a, a question, and it's, not, it's translated godly, but the, the word there is chayil, and it has the idea of a person of, as it is in talking about male leaders, as someone of noble character, someone of virtue, someone of strength of character. Uh, it's not really virtue in the uh, classic sense unless you think of someone who is a a virtuoso, someone who has mastered some skills. Uh, This is a woman who can run a business, run the estate. She can uh, educate and rear her children. She can be involved in uh, international trade, things of that nature. She has, as the NET translates it, noble, uh, noble character. In Proverbs 12, 4, Uh, It's translated an excellent wife uh, by the New King James, and the NET is consistent translating it as a noble wife. The the fifth point and the second characteristic is that of one who is a God-fearer. That means it is somebody who isn't just going through the motions of the ritual and giving lip service to God, someone who wears their religion on their shirt sleeve, but it is someone who is truly walking with the Lord, someone who is a true worshiper of God with all of their life, and they are trying to live uh, consistently with the law of Moses as it was intended uh, in the spirit of of the law. And there are various characteristics that are given in association with someone who is a God-fearer. If you look up the phrase, as we will go through in just a minute, and look at what is said about those who have the fear of the Lord, then you will see that they are those who reject sin, they reject idolatry, they value God's Word, they study on God's Word, they meditate on God's Word, They are actively living the spiritual life, not just going through the motions to cover their bases. And this is a key to genuine, true, biblical leadership. And that was the kind of thing that Moses was looking for, not just someone who who was a strong person, who had strong leadership skills, but someone who has that uh, shaped by his fear of the Lord. This is not seen in any of the kings of Israel in the north, and it's only seen in two or three in the south, David being being the first, uh, first one. When we go through the scripture, we see that people who fear the Lord uh, believe the Lord. In Exodus chapter uh, 14, Uh, verse 31. So they are trusting the Lord. They believe him. They know his word. They know his character to believe him. Second, they obey the Lord and they keep his statutes and commandments. And that's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 2. 
They third, they serve the Lord and they take oaths in his name. And that is because they know that they will carry out what they say they will do. They are men of their word. And you see this in passages like Deuteronomy 6, 13 and 24, and also in Deuteronomy 10, uh, 20. They walk in his ways according to Deuteronomy uh, 10, 22. They walk in all of his ways to love him with all their heart and with all their soul. So they are focused on their spiritual life. It's not just something that's uh, circumstantial in their life. They walk in all of his ways. They read the scriptures daily. They hear the word. They observe the word to learn to fear the Lord. This is in Deuteronomy seventeen nineteen, and Deuteronomy 31, 12. They also serve the Lord with integrity and loyalty, the way it is translated in the NET Bible in Joshua 24, uh, uh, 14. And also in that same verse, they put away idols. Now that's so important in the context of judges because the problem in the nation is that they are turning to idolatry. Now, a lot of people who are listening are probably thinking, well, that's not a problem for me. I haven't gone down to the pagan temple recently and uh, worshipped any idols made of stone or metal or wood. But Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that covetousness or greed is idolatry. We have all kinds of more abstract idols in our minds today that we worship, We worship anything that is more important to us in life than our walk with the Lord. And so we make idols out of just about any detail of life, whatever it may be. It may be success. It may be education. It may be social life. It may be um, uh, relationships. uh, It could be uh, sex. It could be uh, money. It can be the things that money can buy. It can be drugs. It can be pleasure. All of these things can become idols in our life because they're more important to us than serving the Lord. So they are to put away idols. And in 1 Samuel twelve twenty four, they are to they serve the Lord in truth. They are characterized by truth. And in the context, it has the idea of, of integrity. In 2 Kings 17, the people feared the Lord, yet they still served idols. So even those who fear the Lord compromise. That's a fascinating verse to look at because it is clear that the people fear the Lord, yet they have still compromised in their uh, walk with the Lord. Yet they they are said by the the Holy Spirit who who wrote the scriptures that, this, they have, uh, uh, they serve idols, but they fear, fear the Lord. In Job twenty-eight, twenty-eight, we read, "And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom." In Proverbs, we'll see that in Proverbs one seven in a minute that uh, David had taught Solomon. Solomon wrote what David had taught him that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and also it is the beginning of wisdom. The starting point is the fear of the Lord. And why would that be? 
The fear of the Lord is a recognition of God's authority. The fear of the Lord is, a, is authority orientation. When the scripture says that Moses is the most humble man in the Old Testament, that is because he is submissive to God. It is not this idea, so many people when they hear the word humble, they think of humiliation. Humiliation is not being humble. Humiliation is degrading. Humiliation is thinking less of yourself than you ought to think. Uh, humiliation is when you think that, oh, I just have to let everybody walk all over me. Submission to authority is not letting everybody walk all over you. Uh, submission to authority is recognizing that you're under the authority of God and you're going to live on the basis of the authority of God. It is illustrated in Christ who humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death on the cross, according to Philippians chapter 2. So humility is the person who is obedient to God, recognizes that God is the authority in his life, and submits to God, God's authority. The person who redefines humility as letting somebody walk all over them uh, doesn't understand authority, doesn't understand anything about humility, and is probably pretty miserable because they can't get into the right relationship with whatever authorities are over them. So Job recognized that it's the starting point. It's skill in life. You want to have skill in life? It starts with the fear of the Lord. And to depart from evil is understanding. So you have a, a, a parallelism here where you have the, the phrase, the fear of the Lord is in the first line. The parallel to it is to depart from evil. Now, some people say, well, I don't see why that's a synonym. Well, it is because the person who fears the Lord turns from evil in other passages. So it's putting the result for the cause. So the cause is their fear of the Lord. The result is uh, that they depart from evil. So the one who departs from evil is the one who fears the Lord. So in that sense, they are uh, the two ideas are reflecting one another, which is the essence of synonymous parallelism in the Hebrew. In uh, Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So it, it, it produces that in life which endures through eternity. It is our testimony that is uh, always going to be uh, a trophy in heaven. And the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So when we hear the word of the Lord is clean, what that is talking about is an absence of sin. It's, it leads to purity in the sense of walking with the Lord. In Psalm twenty-two, twenty-three, you who fear the Lord, praise him. So the one who fears the Lord is one who praises God and is not afraid to declare that God is the one who has prospered him, blessed him, provided for him, and talks about the things that God has done in his life. Uh, praising the Lord is not saying praise the Lord. It is talking about how God has intervened in our lives and what he has done for us. Blessed, or in this case it could be translated happy is the man, and this isn't talking about an emotional happiness. This is talking about a stability in the soul where there is joy. Blessed is the man who fears, uh, who fears the Lord. 
Let me get the right verse up there. I skipped one. There we go. I got out of order. Yeah. Praise, uh, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. So the one who fears the Lord is excited about learning the word. It looks forward to coming to Bible class, looks forward to coming to uh, Sunday morning worship to study the word and to learn the word. And that should be what characterizes all of us, that that is uh, everything else in life should revolve around the fact that we are learning what God has recorded, preserved, and uh, provided for us. In Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is humility, submission to the authority of God, recognizing he's the one who oversees our life, and that's the starting point of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Psalm, or Proverbs 129 says, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. So the people who don't fear the Lord hate knowledge and they hate the truth. Paul puts it as suppressing the truth and unrighteousness in Romans 1. In Proverbs 2.5 or 3.7, where did I skip to? Uh, Proverbs 2.5, I left that one out. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So it is when you fear the Lord that you will come to understand who God is and you will develop that relationship with God. In Proverbs 3, 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. In other words, arrogant and conceited. Fear the Lord and what? Depart from evil. So what does it mean, depart from evil? Again, we have to go back to how this word is used most of the time in the Old Testament. It is in contrast to uh, serving the Lord. Evil is idolatry. Those who did evil worship the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So this is a word that is the opposite of idolatry. And again, well, I don't really go down to to a pagan temple and worship an idol, but, but we all have idolatrous thoughts and orientations by putting the details of life uh, more important than God. That doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the details of life. It's a matter of priority. It's a matter of what is most important, what is the focal point of what gives your life meaning and, and value. So all of these different phrases talk about uh, the value that God has uh, that, that comes to us when we have a leader who fears the Lord. And then we have the phrase, men of truth. These are those who are trustworthy. They are truthful. They're characterized by the truth. They speak the truth. You can trust them when they tell you something and when they teach you something. Uh, today, truth is a marketable commodity that is used only when it's convenient. And often you hear people who haven't thought very much about what they're saying say that, well, you have your truth and I have my truth. No, you don't. Truth is truth. It is not something that is subjective. It is not something that varies from person to person. 
Uh, truth is not something that can be contradicted. Something is either true or it is false. It's, it's a binary uh, choice. And today we live in a postmodern world, and one of the things that I'm going to be developing more and more as we go through Judges is this issue of, uh, of the compromise with the worldview of the culture that surrounds you. And that's what we see Israel did. They compromised with the worldview of the pagans. And in order to avoid, being, avoid compromising with the worldview, we have to understand it. Now, I've gone through this to some degree in different studies where we've looked at modernism and what modernism looks like looked like as a worldview. And we still have a lot of people who are uh, modernists. They're older, usually, and they are... Uh, maybe atheists or agnostics, maybe they're Christians, but they still think within a an enlightenment, rational, empirical framework. But as a worldview, the elite, uh, the intellectual elites among us rejected modernism as a way to find answers to life's questions by the end of the 19th century. And it was replaced at the beginning of the 19th, of the 20th century with post-modernism. You would think that whatever is today is modern, but they, they, they can't really come up with a good descriptor for these views. So they referred to that period from roughly 1600 to 1900 as the modern period, and they couldn't be they couldn't come up with a good description for what it was after that so they just settled for postmodernism which shows that they were intellectually bankrupt and now we're going into something that is called critical social justice and this is like postmodernism on steroids and it is still built on the assumption underlying postmodernism that there are no absolutes. But now they're go it's going to establish an absolute by replacing what is perceived as the oppressor class with another class that are just as tyrannical. And we will see that it's motivated by, by greed and materialism lust, just as they are critical of capitalists for being greedy and materialistic. They just want to change the ones who get to enjoy the goodies. But they're just as envious and greedy as everybody else. That's just endemic to the sin nature. But as we go through this, we have to recognize that in this crazy world, as much as we may dislike what they believe and not like to learn much about it, we are commanded in the scriptures to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And so we have to be able to articulate that and not uh, set off booby traps in the way by, by under, understanding how the culture around us is thinking, and it's fluid. And the scary thing for all of us is we have, you go out into your neighborhood, you have modernists, you have postmodernists, and you have uh, critical social justice people. And some of them are in this, all in the same family. So it's just a, a, a strange thing. So what do we have to have? We have to have not just a knowledge of doctrine. We have to have skill at using it. 
And that only comes from practice. That's, that's the, comes from the fear of the Lord and developing wisdom. So uh, we have to come, come to understand all of these things. And at the very core, we have to be people who are truthful. That shows through. People that you don't know, I mean people you know, but pe- you don't know that they're watching you. But there are unbelievers in your periphery that are watching you. They're looking for you to stumble. They're looking to see if you're consistent with what you say, all kinds of things like that. And so we have to have wisdom. And that only comes with time. And it, most of the things we learn are learned as a result of a lot of mistakes. And it seems like we learn more from the mistakes we make than from getting it right sometimes. So uh, we have to go through that learning process. But we have to learn to be honest, truthful, trustworthy, dependable, honest. Seventh, seventh thing, or seventh point, which is the uh, fourth point, fifth point rather, fifth characteristic, is hating covetousness. This is the idea that people can't be bought, people can't be bribed, uh, people can't be blackmailed because they are going to have virtue and integrity. And unfortunately, when we look at the book of Judges, we don't find leaders who have all of these qualifications. We have several, as I pointed out earlier, Gideon, Jephthah are said to be uh, Chayil men, but it's not stated of others, uh, although it is clearly implied in the case of several others that they are, are, such as Othniel. And then you have others that are just uh, slaves of their own lust patterns and their own arrogance like Samuel. But God chose Samuel and put him in that position as a leader. And I would bet that having read through the chapters in Judges about Samuel giving us God's perspective on who he really was, there's not a person here who would vote for him to be judge. Because we would say, oh, he just doesn't have the right integrity. He doesn't have the right morality. Uh, There are so many failings, and yet God chose men all through this period that had numerous flaws, numerous failings, and yet God knew that they were the right person for the job at that particular time. Doesn't mean that God approves of everything else that they did, doesn't mean that God uh, was overlooking those things because in some cases like Gideon, they're not only going to be able to provide a victory, but in providing the victory, they're also going to lead the people into sin. And so it's, it's a, a mixed bag, but all of that is the result of this overall culture that where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that culture is not any better than our culture or any worse than our culture because that's exactly, exactly where we are. Now, when we look at these, these leaders, we have to, have to ask the question, well, where did they get their information? Where did they get their knowledge and wisdom? How did they, uh, these men that ha- have these five characteristics, how do they know what is the right thing to do? And the, the 
reality is that you they got it from God, and so they had to have an understanding of the bedrock of biblical truth. They had to have a measuring rod, a benchmark against which to evaluate things. And in Deuteronomy, there are two passages that talk about the importance of evaluating someone's claim to having the truth and having uh, the right kind of knowledge. And the first test, and the first is in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And this is where God warns the Israelites not to be influenced by false ideas, false messages, false worldviews, and false gods. And so in the first part of Deuteronomy, you, may, you might want to turn there as we talk about that passage because we'll look at Deuteronomy 13 after this. But the first part of this chapter is talking about qualifications for the priests. And then it begins to talk about uh, the avoiding uh, those who have this false message and having the wisdom to discern who is speaking lies. And if we ever need that kind of wisdom, it's today. We have so many people, so many voices, people who in the past perhaps we thought we could trust, and they say one thing, and then somebody else says something else, and instead of just having two options, we have ten different viewpoints. And they are presented in this by this journalist or that journalist or this leader or that leader, and we have no idea what to believe. And uh, I, I challenge you, you have to research every single thing, and then as soon as you think you figured it out, then you learn something about the situation you didn't know before, and it changes everything. It, we, it's, it's a terrible time to live. So we read in Deuteronomy 18.9, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, emphasis on the fact that they didn't earn it, They didn't deserve it. This is God's grace giving them this land. And there is the warning that you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. Now, what were the abominations of those nations? When we go through uh, Numbers, I actually go back to Leviticus, Numbers, we go through the law, you go through the historical books, you realize that these nations practice just a range of horrible sins and practices and activities. They, in, they were involved in fertility worship. They were also involved in, um, in child sacrifice. Now, what motivated both of those was greed because the fertility worship promised that they would have abundant crops and therefore they would make money and they could have a nicer home and more of the comforts of life. And so they were motivated ultimately by greed and they were motivated by uh, a materialism lust. Things have not changed any uh, over the thousands of years. And so they engaged in child sacrifice. And some people say, well, I don't sacrifice my children. Well, maybe you don't think, you, you don't take them out on an altar and slit their throat and let them be burned alive in the arms of Moloch, but you sacrifice them in many other ways because you're too busy to be a parent. 
you're too busy to take all of the time and energy it takes to watch over their use of their uh, iPads and their iPhones and their laptops and everything else. You're too busy to um, watch their friends and to really uh, make sure they are protected because the opportunities and the dangers in our culture today are so much worse than they were when any of us were, were, were growing up. But these people were also involved in bestiality and homosexuality and adultery and fornication and all kinds of other horrible things. These are all identified in various passages as abominations of the, of the Gentiles. In verse 10 we read that um, as we break this thing down, uh, let me go. First of all, there was, they shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That's the first part of Deuteronomy 18.10. And so this clearly identifies the fact that they were engaged in child sacrifice. Now, that's not a pleasant thing to think about. When I was uh, in my Master of Theology program and majoring in Hebrew, I, I always hated all of the things that I was interested in writing a master's thesis on were already taken, and you can't write a topic that's already been written on. So I decided, because I was teaching through judges in what they called the Lay Institute, I thought, well, there's a lot of controversy over Jephthah's vow in Judges chapter 6. A lot of evangelicals are very squeamish about the fact that Je- that uh, Jephthah would have l- literally offered his daughter as a burnt offering to God. But his name's in Hebrews 11. That can't be that he would do that. Well, we have to understand what was going on the time that these men were all compromised to some degree because of the fact that they didn't know much about the word. And so they they assimilated to some degree to the culture around them. And that culture was practicing child sacrifice. And in the late, even in the late 70s, there were a, a number of evangelicals who didn't believe that happened in Israel until you get into the later period of the divided monarchy. And uh, I, I was able to find a few good scholarly sources that... Uh, refuted that, and it's and uh, yet that was not the view of my grader, who I think decided not to uh, grade, decided to grade me down a little bit because he didn't agree agree with the the position. But the reality was that in the it's been almost forty over forty years since I wrote that thesis. But the reality is that in those years, I bet there have been. 20 or 30 scholarly studies done on Jephthah's vow and maybe five held the traditional view that he's dedicating her to the service of Yahweh and perpetual virginity and so she's going to go off and serve at the temple for the rest of her life. And nearly everybody else that's been writing the last 40 years takes the view that that he sacrificed her. This was a horrible element of the everyday culture in Canaan. This is what they did. So if you're going to be a leader and you're going to understand the wisdom of God, you can't be involved in child sacrifice. 
Second, you can't practice witchcraft. That's the second part of Deuteronomy 18.10. One who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. Now, those phrases are uh, very similar to one another in their meaning. In fact, you'll look up uh, one Hebrew word and it will say, you know, witchcraft, a soothsayer. You look up the next word, it says witchcraft, a soothsayer. So they're words that are very uh, close in meaning. So a uh, definition of each one, a di- divination is someone who is a soothsayer or one who inter- interprets omens and they would use different things in order to uh, predict the future. All of that's involved in it. So you have the word uh, kesem, which is dis- de- defined uh, as divination, the practice of seeking knowledge by supernatural means apart from the scripture. And so that's prohibited. Uh, that would involve astrology. That would involve tarot cards. That would involve going to uh, somebody who said they could tell your future, read your palm. All of those things would be prohibited uh, by this term and by the other terms as well. Uh, the second term, anon, is a word that means to uh, practice fortune telling, which is uh, you know just slightly different from the first term. Uh, someone who's practicing fortune telling, magic. The verb for this is used 11 times, and the dictionary says it's of uncertain meaning, but it is clear it's part of a range of occultic practices which were associated with the pagan worship. They were trying to find out their future without uh, going to the revelation of God. The third word that's used in this is nahash, which is defined as practicing uh, divination, someone who is seeking knowledge about the future apart from God's word. God does not want us to know what's going to happen in the future because only he is the one who should divulge what we need to know. And then the last word is kashaf, which is also translated as just practicing uh, sorcery. So we have passages such as Leviticus uh, 1926, you shall not eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. And in 2 Kings 17, 17, they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire. This is during, I believe, the time of Manasseh, or it may have been earlier, but they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire practice witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil, that's in idolatry, in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Now, when we read that verse, we see that it is just the opposite of what we are told here, that they are not to find anyone among them who practices witchcraft or being a soothsayer or interpreting omens or a sorcerer or letting the, passing their children through the fire. That means sacrificing them alive. Second Kings 21.6, this is talking about Manasseh, who was the most evil king in the southern kingdom. He made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. So he is doing everything. They, they, by this time, the culture in the divided kingdom has completely given itself over 
to all of the evil practices of, of the Canaanites. So we come back to um, oh, one thing I wanted to say about one other thing. I wanted to read a little bit of the context uh, in Second Kings 2. It says after he were noted that he became king and he reigned for 55 years, that's a long administration. That's even longer than Franklin Roosevelt. Um, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before Israel. So he's guilty of all of those sins. And then it's described, he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. So here's a godly king, Hezekiah, who has a son who is evil. But before the end of Manasseh's life, he is going to turn to God and truly repent. And he gets saved and he tries to change things, but it's too, it's too late. God is going to bring judgment on the southern kingdom. He raised up altars for Baal, made a wooden image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Now, that doesn't mean he just worshipped the stars and was into astrology. The host of heaven is the army of heaven. This is a term that relates to angels and demons. So he is worshipping all of the demons and the gods that they have uh, put up. He also built altars in the house of the Lord. So he builds altars to false gods in the temple of Yahweh. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So this, this is why it, how it gets so bad. And then we go on, and in Deuteronomy 18, 15, God promises that you... You don't have anything to do with all of these false ways of knowing truth because the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses is speaking. He's going to be a prophet like me. And we know that this is messianic. When Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in John 4, she says, are you the prophet? And this is what she's talking about. They're looking for this prophet that Moses said would come. So God will raise up this prophet. Moses says, Him you shall hear according to all of you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let not let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more lest I die. This is when God appears to them as a fire on Mount Sinai, and he is speaking to them, and they actually hear the voice of the Lord and they are trembling. They don't want to hear it anymore. They tell Moses, you go up and talk to him. We don't want to hear him anymore. And the Lord said to me, Moses says, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So the reason the penalty is so harsh is because God loved his people. And by listening to a false prophet, it would lead them into such horrors 
that he, that such a person who would lead them into those abominations should be put to death to protect the people whom God loved. So this is an act of love. There's a parental application there. Just think about it. Now, 1 Peter 1.21 tells us that that this prophecy that came through the biblical prophets did not originate with themselves. It did not come by their will, but the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, the second test is given in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. And it begins, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, that would be like uh, Balaam, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. Now, he doesn't say a false sign or a false wonder. It's a genuine sign. Something miraculous happens. He says, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods. So this, what this first, what's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so somebody comes along and contradicts what is written in the word of God and says, let's go after other gods. You know right away he's a false prophet. So what you need to know is what the scripture says so you don't get led astray by the false prophets or the false teachers. And this one is going to give a a, a sign. He's going to actually heal somebody. He's going to perform uh, an actual miracle because that's how the text presents it. It's a test, it says. God's going to test you to see if you're going to stick with the word or follow the person who can do miracles. And we know right away that there's all kinds of Christians today who are chasing after people who claim to do miracles because rather than trusting God and his word, they want some quick fix for some problem in their life rather than uh, learning to walk by the spirit and grow to spiritual maturity and learn the Bible. So Deuteronomy 32, uh, 13.2 says, And the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's why God is leaving these nations there to test the Jews to see if they're going to listen to these uh, false prophets in the Canaanite religions. Are they, go- are they going to stick to the word? In Deuteronomy 13, 4 God says, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice, to trap you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall put away the evil from your midst. They, that would be the fear of the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees, they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebul, which is just another name for for Satan. And, and what's interesting is, uh, is Jesus' response. Now, now in verse uh, Matthew twelve twenty four. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, 
the ruler of the demons. This is committing the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But notice what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, something that I'm not sure I brought out, but that, that statement is affirming the fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are casting out demons. That's Deuteronomy 13. They're actually performing signs and wonders. And yet the people are being sucked into that uh, and because what they're teaching contradicts what the Word of God is saying. So that is bringing us up to where we will be starting in the uh, next week is looking at uh, Judges 3, 1, and 2. We've been through this in one way, and I want to go back and pull some other things together as we get into this next time. So we'll wait for Judges 3 uh, next week. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to realize that, that what is emphasized here for all of us is that we are to be like these leaders. That's what's expected of every one of us. We are to uh, pursue maturity. We're to fear you. We are to be uh, have strength because our strength comes from you. We are to be men of tr- men and women of truth, uh, truthful in everything that we say, honest in everything that that we say. We are to have a character that is shaped by your word, and we are to um, uh, be honest. All of these characteristics should characterize all of us. And so this should should challenge us. We should not be taken in by the evil around us. We should be like the men of Issachar and understand the times. And the only way to understand the times is to understand the broad sweep of the characteristics and the arguments and the things that are out there because they are being pushed on the church today in ways that we have not seen in Uh, Christianity since the days of the Protestant Reformation and the uh, assaults against the Reformers, the torture, the persecution, uh, the families that are torn apart, all of the horrible things that happened uh, that we had thought we had put behind us. And yet we are seeing on the horizon some of these things coming back. We pray that you would strengthen us, that we would realize the only way we can face this is by your strength that God the Holy Spirit would strengthen us and give us insight because uh, we are to stand firm in the face of this evil and not act as if it's not there. And we pray that you would give us the courage from the Holy Spirit and from your word to do this. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.